If you have a connection to languages, this is the podcast for you. Whether you're a language learner, a language teacher, a language researcher, or anyone who's interested in languages. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and alongside Dr. Marie-Jose Bisson, we are the Language Scientists, and this is our podcast. We are senior lecturers in psychology at De Montfort University, and we conduct research into the area of language learning. Throughout this series, we hope to translate the science behind language learning into informative and useful practical advice. So sit back and enjoy. Today, we are joined by Dr. Jiayi Wang from here at De Montfort University, who will be discussing with us uh, the topic of pragmatics in language learning. So welcome. Oh, thank you. Hi, Caitlin. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, we're really excited to have you. So Dr. Jiayi Wang is an associate professor at De Montfort University. Now she's not in psychology with myself and Marie, and this really kind of speaks to how often you see people studying language learning who are coming from different areas or different disciplines. So that's why we say it's usually a really interdisciplinary topic. Absolutely. Jiayi works in a different faculty altogether. So she's in the School of Humanities from the Faculty of Arts, Design, and Humanities. Jiayi holds her PhD in Applied Linguistics from the University of Warwick. Uh, her BA is in English Language and Literature from Beijing East International Studies University. And her MA is in Applied Linguistics, focusing on simultaneous interpreting from Beijing Foreign Studies Universities University. And her research is on pragmatics, which she's going to tell us a little what that means, intercultural communication, language education, and corpus-based discourse analysis. So I'm really excited to hear from her. And thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for the very comprehensive introduction. Well, here's the thing is that we like to hear everybody's background. We like to know kind of how you got here. And and that's the cool thing. Everyone's coming from a different view and a different perspective, right? Absolutely. Totally agree. So one of the things that we start with is we ask our guest to tell us a little bit about your language background. So could you tell us a little bit about your language experiences, languages you speak? Yeah, sure. So as you can tell, probably, so English is not my mother tongue. Um, my mother tongue is Mandarin, and I studied English as a second language uh, in school. So I think I haven't, I, I had never spoken to a native speaker of English language until I went to university. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's so I was 100% a language learner. And then in my university years, I studied French as well and the Japanese. But since I didn't use it, use these languages very much in my work. So I almost, <laughs> I think they were very rusty. I almost completely forgot uh, almost all of them, if not uh, most of them, if not all of them. So that's why in, uh, language is all about uh, language use. And it's very important to use a language. And of course, for simultaneous interpreting, uh, that's very interesting because I was a English language teacher at university and I was given very restricted teaching plans to stick to and the textbooks. Intuitively, I thought that might not be a very good way of teaching. However, I wasn't that experienced at that time. And then, of course, I did a master's in applied linguistics, but focusing on simultaneous interpreting because I was always interested in language use in real life, real world language. So with simultaneous interpreting, that's fascinating because you are supposed to speak and listen at the same time. And people are saying that's against human nature. <laughs> so that's why when you are doing that, you are really you have to expand your working memory. 
to for you to be able to capture as many things as possible in the short term. So that's fascinating. And then, of course, I worked as a conference interpreter and translator for a number of organizations and multinational corporations. And then I became a international project manager at a government ministry. <laughs> so very miscellaneous. <laughs> and at that time, the main area I was responsible for uh, was the United States. Ta-da! Ta-da! Yeah. <laughs> so what a coincidence. So then, of course, uh, in the work, um, a lot of the senior officials and including professionals and business people came to me to ask, oh, Jai, what does that mean when they uh, when they said that? Or what do they mean when they uh, did that? And most of the time, I couldn't fully answer the questions, to be honest with you. And I went back to look for some cultural guidebooks but I couldn't find the I couldn't find the answer, so that's why I was saying to myself, "Oh, I'm so fascinated by this topic, so I need to explore it further." So that's why I did my PhD in intercultural communication, and of course, pragmatics is quite important part of it, and pra because pragmatics is about language use in context, so it's quite closely connected uh, to the real world. Okay, so you're coming at it from you developed your fluency as a learner. And then you realized as an interpreter that there were additional questions that needed to be answered and they weren't really easily answered. Am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So then you did your 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 PhD, which is implied linguistics, mm -hmm. and you were focusing on intercultural communication. First of all, what do we mean by intercultural communication? Yeah, it just means communication between people from uh, different cultural backgrounds, to put it simply. And sometimes it can be uh, people speaking different languages. Sometimes they can be uh, people speaking the same language like you, Caitlin, coming to the UK and thinking, oh, why people don't use how to do just like I did. When I came here, when I spoke to my British colleagues, I was saying, oh, that's the end uh, period. And they were all looking confused. Then I said, oh, maybe full stop. <laughs> so that's the thing. <laughs> yep. I ran into that one. <laughs> so it's learning these kind of rules or expectations, right? Yes, absolutely. You're, uh, that's a very nice way of saying uh, rules. So pragmatics is about language use in context. So uh, for pragmatics, it's what is important is not just about the language use itself, but also about like what you said, the rules, the social cultural constraints in relation to the language use. Uh, so, for example, you are uh, writing an email to a friend. Maybe you are using different language compared to the email you sent to your boss. Just a quick example. So there are a lot of things involved, power relations, power status, or things like that. So I think these things are really important in that on many occasions, they are not really being taught in a very systematic way in textbooks. So that's why I, I still remember very clearly one of my master's students uh, came to me uh, probably more than seven or eight years ago, uh, did ask me the question, and she was a proficient English language user. I think she was studying a degree uh, in TESOL-related area. I couldn't remember the detail, but she was definitely a good English language user and uh, very proficient. But she uh, arrived in the UK and found out nobody was using how do you do. She was confused. Uh, 
because she came to me saying that uh, you know since uh, I was uh, in school in the English textbooks we were we were told the most important English greeting even the British English greetings is how do you do but why when I came here nobody said that why oh I couldn't answer that question of course I was uh, talking to my British colleagues as well about this and they they, they were laughing saying probably I will only use uh, use that when I meet the Queen yeah. <laughs> so it's very rare they will never use it in daily life so that kind of things they are subtle but that quite important and I think that's the gap uh, in the language textbooks because for a very long time language learning and language teaching uh, have stressed grammar and vocabulary However, even with the knowledge of uh, vocabulary and grammar, uh, the students or language learners in, gen in general can still struggle. And that has to do with pragmatics. Because some research or uh, prior research has found that if uh, language learners, they have committed a pragmatic failure, which means that there's something wrong with the language use in context, um, the cons consequences are much more severe than grammatical mistakes. So because those pragmatic failure may reflect on that language learner, on that person very badly. So the, maybe the interlocutors may think, oh, the language, per, uh, the language user is a bad person because they are saying it in a very rude way or they, they may be offended. So that's why there is an emerging consensus that the consequences of uh, making pragmatic mistakes could be more severe. However, in our language teaching and learning, pragmatics are not incorporated very systematically into our teaching materials or learning materials. So there is a huge gap there that needs to be filled. So that's why I think more and more researchers are calling uh, for more uh, research as well as pedagogical interventions into these areas. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. As you were describing, you know, the importance of teaching pragmatics and teaching these rules to learners, I was thinking through my, so I had French as a minor. So I took all the same classes that the majors did. So I should have been just as well educated, just with less hours. I mean, I took two courses in like conversation, mm -hmm. but I don't know that we really discussed pragmatics very much. Mm. And I know we took a phonetics class and phonology classes in French and, and tons of history and literature, but, but nothing in pragmatics. And now I'm thinking, that's absolutely bonkers. No, no, you're absolutely right, though. I mean, and, and even the conversation in the same language, but like two different dialects, right? So the how do you do example. Mm. So here, especially in the Midlands, like, you all right? Yeah. As the hello. <laughs> now in the US, we would say, oh, hey, how are you? Now, of course, you mean like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. And and you go from there, and that's the unspoken rule. But the you are right. Do you know how many Americans that takes off, like takes by surprise? Because we say, like, you immediately assume like you don't look all right. And you're like, no, I think I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with me? <laughs> like, I don't know. I No, I'm not all right. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. I think that's the fascinating aspect uh, of ling uh, linguistics and of pragmatics, of language use in context, because it's linked to the real world. Yeah. And I think the thing uh, about textbooks, there are many reasons why pragmatics are not covered uh, comprehensively in textbooks. The pragmatics are not fixed. 
So they can change, like what you said, there are regional variations and they may change uh, with time as well. So sometimes, and there are subtle rules, it's quite hard to pin them down as well in terms of how, how just write down the top uh, top 10 rules for using language in the UK. It's quite hard, it's not that easy. However, they can be um, integrated with uh, language teaching uh, in a way. Uh, for example, you probably know that we have some uh, uh, conventionalized formulae that can be used in certain contexts quite regularly. And it'd be good to let the language users or language learners know what the patterns are and in what context, uh, what role relationships that they can use those kind of things. So they're not just sticking to the textbook and keep remembering, oh, I need to use how to do, how to do, how to do, um, how to do, or I'm fine, thank you, and do, that kind of thing. So it, it needs to be more uh, flexible, I would say. Okay, so I think what we've established so far is that it's really important to be learning these rules for pragmatics and that it's not something that's naturally kind of embedded into the learning process for learning a new language. So then one of the things that you were going to tell us about today was some of the research that you're doing on emails, which is really an interesting thing. I, I mean, I know even just, I've said this before, but the switch from U.S., American woman sending an email, which is lots of exclamation points, apologies to everybody, uh, to what is perhaps a more standard UK acceptable email with less exclamation points for everything. And that was a rule that, you know, I had to absorb. Now, you have done research for emails, but specifically looking at L2 speakers or learners. Could you tell us a little bit more about where this research started and what you've learned and what you studied and what you, you found out at the end. Yeah, sure. So yeah, like what you said, emails are very interesting and they're in increasingly important in today's academic life or professional life or even everyday life. So the reason uh, why I started this research with my colleagues is simply because we were approached by a number of uh, students who said they were struggling with writing the proper emails because uh, like the example I gave earlier, so one of my master's students came to me showing the email reply she received from one of the academics asking the student to mind her language. And she was really shocked because she was a very proficient uh, user of English language and she didn't know what she did wrong. And also she was too embarrassed to ask that academic for feedback. So of course I, I've, uh, I've said, okay, just share the emails with me uh, and then we can talk through the things. And obviously I realized that uh, it, it's a very quick example. At that time, the academic was giving out free concert tickets to students across the whole school. And so basically any student, even those who were not taught by that academic could go there and collect a ticket. So my master's student uh, emailed him and saying that uh, I'm whom whom from which program I'm a master's student and I want one ticket. And can I come to your office to collect uh, this afternoon? And quite straightforward and a little bit direct. So that's why the academic was quite offended. Mm. And normally, I think academics are very tolerant. In, in most cases, probably they won't say that, oh, that's very rude and you shouldn't say that. And with international students, it's quite hard for them to receive some feedback because normally uh, the academics won't go back to them saying that, oh, the language you use is not really appropriate. And people are, uh, people are really offended. And the, the funny thing is, uh, even research has found that 
that、uh, many of the academics are quite disturbed or upset by in- inappropriate language use、uh, in emails、uh, from students. So the reason, like we mentioned, these students, but also our academic colleagues, complained about students' emails too. <laughs> And so we think, okay, that's something that these students haven't really learned because for many international students, they rarely used、uh, emails before they came to the UK. So a lot of things involved in that. So what we did、uh, over a year, we've collected some. Authentic emails with a lot of consent, of course,、uh, ethics consent,、uh, from international students, and、uh, they are all real emails. And we also collected、uh, real authentic emails from native speakers. So they are all from students to academic、uh, staff. So the power relations、uh, were the same. So the status、uh, was not equal. And then, of course, we built two corpora and compare them to see the patterns whether there were any noticeable differences. And of course, we found noticeable differences. And like、uh, what I've、uh, described to you, and the, there are just different ways of、um, talking to their professors in the emails. And for especially for our, for example, for our students from Asia, including our Japanese, Korean, and Chinese students. They all tend to believe that the longer the email, the more polite you are. Okay, so that's why they, on certain occasions, they realize that、uh, their British classmates or their British British professors wrote much shorter emails. However, they 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 felt it's quite a hard、uh, hurdle for them to overcome psychologically. And also in terms of terms address, for example. They will keep calling、uh, me or my colleagues, saying, for example, Doctor Wang or Professor Wang. When I said just call me Jiayi, they said, okay, Doctor Jiayi or Professor Jiayi. <laughs> okay, so it's not just about awkward language use. There are a lot of underlying reasons why they make those decisions. So after collecting、uh, these two corpora, we of course we also ask the. Uh, language users and native speakers to、uh, compare them because we anonymize all the emails. They couldn't distinguish between、uh, whether it's from L2、uh, language user, whether it's from native speaker. So we mix them together and ask our participants,、uh, different participants, to evaluate these emails. Because at the end of the day, I think the important aspects of language use is evaluation. So really. Whether it's good or not, it's polite or impolite. Whether they take offense or not, it's always important to take evaluation into account. Not just evaluation by the researchers ourselves, but evaluation by real language users, native speakers or non-native speakers. So we've、uh, got these datasets evaluated by both students and staff, and we can clearly. S- See that there are some patterns, cultural patternings, in relation to the email language use. So very different, but also in relation to the rationale behind those different cultural patternings. So, for example,、uh, I've mentioned earlier that、uh, for our、uh, Chinese, Korean, Japanese students, they all believe that the shorter the email, the ruder you are. I would say. However,、uh, when you ask them why that was the reason for international students, and then they will be able to begin to unpack 
the underlying assumptions that they hold about those linguistic behaviors or those cultural patternings. And for example, they they thought it's very rude to start with a request that's too direct. And so they would like to start with some small talk, and、uh, with some <laughs> yeah, fatty communication. So they will.、Uh, Build rapport with the academic, with their professor in the email. So when the request was made, the the professor won't be that upset because you've already built some relationship before the request is coming. So that's very interesting. And when you ask them to think about the different、uh, structure or the different sequencing, comparing L two emails and L one emails. And they said, "Oh yes, we realize the differences. Some of them, not all of them. Some of them,、uh, especially those who are very attentive language users, they said we did realize some differences in the emails we wrote compared with those written by our British classmates. However, <laughs> they, there are some、um, psychological hurdles and some 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 work that they need to do internally, but also interactively." And I think that's very important to remember. Second language users—they are not just a user of a second language; they are、uh, inherently intercultural. So they have the L1 system and the L2 system. So when the two systems,、um, when the conflicts arise, there are some internal works that they need to do, and also sometimes it has to do with their identities too. For example, we realized and we found that、uh, for some of our participants, the reason why、uh, they、uh, they really insisted on using the wrong—I <laughs> mean, not really wrong—wrong wrong from the standard way of doing things, the wrong ways of uh, uh, making a request or making an apology in the、uh, in the English language—is simply because they want to maintain、um, their identity. And identity of what? Identity of showing respect to their professors. Yeah, because they they never felt they are really equal to their professors, and they don't really feel comfortable to call their professors by their first name. So that's why, even though they were told by their professors, just call me by my first name, they will still use uh the first name plus a professional title to show respect. So I think it's very important for language learners as well as for um. Academics as well to realize that、uh, on many occasions maybe you are offended by certain awkward language use, but maybe there is a reason behind, and the students they have different considerations when they were drafting those emails. So that's why we found these、uh, we found these studies are very interesting and very meaningful. And also when I was talking to a Colleague、uh, from the、uh, English Language Center the other day, and he was saying, "Oh yeah,、uh, the Nigerian students were really asking us how should we write our emails to our professors." <laughs> so people really struggle, and now we think, "Oh really, something not just study the differences, but also with pedagogical interventions and also some advice to students will be really helpful." And nevertheless, I've noted that on many university websites, not for second language users, but for everyone, they've started to pull together some guidelines about email etiquette. Oh, good. Yeah, if you read through those guidelines, oh, it's fascinating. <laughs> so it's not just about language use; it's about a lot of things: relationship, rapport, respect. So distance, social distance. So this is fascinating. So that's all related to language use in context. 
That's really cool. I mean, the fact that you're able to see this pattern and to say, okay, so this is something we're seeing, quote unquote, in the wild, right? In the real world. And and this is something that, I mean, I completely agree. Students and professors, I think, or lecturers, we don't necessarily have that same alignment with emails and what we expect in emails and things like that. And it is about education for either a native speaker even or for uh, an L2 learner. But they have more that they're overcoming, right? So it, you, to, to have that politeness or have that making sure you're following those rules, pragmatics, while you're being grammatically correct and worrying about all of that, uh, there's just so much that they're putting out into that email. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's remember it's uh, worth mentioning that these rules are not fixed, so which make things even worse, right? <laughs> so that's why a lot of nuances have to be negotiated in context. And so that's why we said those are the patternings, the cultural patterns, and doesn't mean that uh, it will be the same all the time. It's sort of like the syndrome in the epidemic. So it doesn't mean everybody will have the symptoms to the same degree, exactly the same. So it's is so culture is quite a controversial concept, I must say, because there are there are like hundreds of definitions that have been made in relation to culture, and it's uh, it has been uh, very controversial in that people are saying, really, what is culture? There are national culture and organizational culture, group culture. So all different layers, they all come into play in the interaction. So that's why it's. I fully sympathize with the language learners. It's not easy to write the um, appropriate email to the professors. The thing is, to date, as far as I'm aware, uh, when my colleague and I, we did our studies, there were no real textbooks or any clear guidelines for our language users. So that's why most of the time, the second language users, they are left to their own devices. And that's why there were reports about people feeling uh, offended or upset or disturbed by those emails. But on the other hand, the language users rarely receive the feedback. Yeah, because it's quite sensitive. And most of the time, maybe the professors or academics, they're focusing on the academic matters. So they wouldn't go back to the international students saying that, okay, unlike the example I gave earlier where the student was told to mind her language, but most of the cases, the students uh, wouldn't know. Yeah. So then do you have a recommendation for a language learner and how they can make sure that they're learning these rules or how would they absorb these rules? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I think it's uh, worth mentioning. So whenever we set rules, maybe I'm oversimplifying it. Hopefully I'm not really. <laughs> making some very controversial comments. So when it comes to pragmatics, uh, language use in context, so it's, it's worth mentioning that it's not just about language per se, about expression, but it's also about the social cultural constraints around those language use or the phrases, for example. So when students are memorizing a word or a phrase, it's not just on the textbook. They really need to remember uh, what is important. It's the language use in the real world. So textbooks are not their Bible. Because so far, I've encountered so many language users keep saying, oh, but that's not what, uh, what's being said in the textbook. But so what? <laughs> <laughs> so textbook doesn't mean that uh, textbooks are always right. And the how to do is such a good example, because even though it was written down as the most important British English greeting 
but it's no longer used that commonly in today's uh, in in today's communication in the UK. So that's why it's important. Number one, top tip number one. So it's never regard your textbooks as the Bible. And what is important is the language used in the real world. And of course, the second point I would really like to mention is that always observe the real language use that's happening around you, especially for those students who are studying abroad. So you are in an immersive environment. You just need to pay attention to the language use. And in I think in language acquisition,、uh, th there is a quite important hypothesis, the notice hypothesis. So in order to be able to acquire a particular phrase or a particular function, you need to really notice it first. So that's why I said to my students all the time, really pay attention to the language use around you. So, for example, just read the emails you've received from your professors, or read the emails you've received from your British classmates. So, not just looking at the textbooks all the time. So, that's the second tip. I think the third tip is for everyone. I think I'm trying as well. It's just don't be afraid of making mistakes. It's quite hard for language learners, I know, because we can be overly critical of ourselves. But we just need to keep reminding ourselves: language use at the end of day is about communication. So, as long as the other side can understand you and the communication is successful, that's great. It's not about grammatical correctness. So, if you couldn't find this word, if you can use an alternative word, that's fine. So I I would say yeah definitely remember that language use is all about real life and it's all about making sure your communication is successful. It's not just about getting a very high grade in your English language test or about writing the、uh, right answer in your textbooks. So remember, real world language use is what is really matters. Those are fantastic tips. They're so thorough. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you taking the time to tell us about what I think is a really cool research study and research area,、um, and really emphasizing the need for pragmatics and for noticing and for absorbing what what's around you essentially. So thank you, thank you, Caitlin. Thank you so much for your time. Of course, we're so excited to hear about it. So in the next podcast, we will be with Professor Neil Kenny, the lead fellow for languages in the British Academy. He works with language policy, so we'll be discussing one of the central themes of the podcast, which is about reviving language learning in the UK. To find out more behind-the-scenes information about this topic or about our podcast in general, please visit our webpage, languagescientists.dmu.ac.uk. This is where you can go to ask questions, leave comments, or even participate in our current research. We would love to hear from you. So thank you for listening, and thank you to De Montfort University for funding this series of the podcast. I'm Dr. Caitlin Zavaleta, and you've been listening to the Language Scientist podcast. <laughs>